what is the proper role of sugar in our society? And is it, can, can it can be considered a poison? Hi, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Dr. Robert Lustig, who is a professor of pediatric endocrinology at the University of California in San Francisco. And uh, you might know him for one of the more popular YouTube videos on sugar. He has over 5 million views. Now, that's not as many as size Gangnam Style with uh, 3 billion, but it's certainly very popular. And you might have also seen him on 60 Minutes. So we're really honored and privileged to have him join us today for a discussion on this really important topic. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, Dr. McCullough. So uh, I'm wondering if you could... Uh, perhaps expand on uh, or comment on the, your, your view on the, the role of sugar in society. Its proper role, I guess, might be a better term for it. Well, you know, once upon a time, sugar was a condiment. And it had been a condiment really from 1200 BC when the Indian subcontinent first learned how to extract cane juice. And it got shipped around as a... Uh, crude extract, which was called kanda, which of course got ultimately shortened to candy. Uh, and it was for nobility. It was hard to come by uh, until about 1700 when the pot still uh, allowed for mass production of refined sugar. It was still extraordinarily expensive until uh, the uh, middle of the 18th, 19th century. And at that point, uh, we started seeing it uh, appearing in various venues, and we started seeing the growth of the American uh, sugar uh, uh, industry in Louisiana, in Texas, in Hawaii. And that's when we started seeing chronic metabolic disease rear its ugly head at about the same time. In fact, the very first uh, uh, demonstration of an increase in chronic metabolic disease was in 1924 when Haven Emerson, the commissioner of health of New York City, noticed a sevenfold increase in diabetes rate in New York City, uh, in the New York City population. Then in 1931, Paul Dudley White called attention to the fact that we had an epidemic of heart disease. In 1988, we learned about the uh, advent of adolescent type 2 diabetes. These are the three seminal hallmarks of chronic metabolic disease pervading our population. And it goes up in lockstep with our increase in per capita sugar consumption. The bottom line is sugar used to be something we added ourselves to coffee, tea, you know, something where we had control over it. Well, now we are consuming virtually 25 times more sugar than our ancestors did. And we don't have control over it. It has gone from condiment to diet staple. It is now anywhere from 15 to 18% of our total calories. Our livers, which process sugar in terms of its metabolism, can't handle the, the load that it's being presented with. And when you overload your liver, you get bad chronic metabolic diseases. That's what the data show. That's what the data on sugar show. Basically, sugar is metabolized virtually identically to that of alcohol. And we are now seeing diseases in children that we never saw before. And they are alcohol-related uh, diseases, like, for instance, non-alcohol fatty liver disease and type 2 diabetes. These are diseases that were never seen in children, but they are diseases of alcohol. But kids don't drink alcohol, but they certainly consume sugar. And that's the point. The point is we are overdosed. We have gone beyond our limit, and we are now evidencing this massive increase in chronic metabolic disease, which is chewing through the health care resources of every developed and developing country on the planet. And this is unsustainable. So as a pediatric endocrinologist, uh, I was wondering if we could dive a bit into the metabolism of the sugar damage. Uh, I'm sure you would agree that the, uh, one of the primary issues is metabolic syndrome. But at the core of the cause of metabolic syndrome, would it, would it be fair to assume that insulin resistance plays a major role in, in, that, that, in that 
syndrome. Right. Insulin resistance is a hallmark of metabolic syndrome. Virtually, whatever, whatever organ becomes insulin resistant becomes a uh, an organ of that that's uh, manifests its own metabolic syndrome. So when you have insulin resistance of, for instance, the liver, you end up with uh, type 2 diabetes. When you have insulin resistance of the brain, you end up with Alzheimer's disease. When you have insulin resistance of the kidney, you end up with chronic renal disease uh, and so forth. Um, the point is that all of these are due to insulin resistance states. The question is, what causes this in the first place? And while the data is not completely in yet, we have some new data that we're very excited about, which demonstrate that if you overload the mitochondria, the little energy-burning factories within the cells, uh, in any given organ, you will end up manifesting these various forms of chronic metabolic disease. And the thing that overloads mitochondria best, trans fats, and the thing that overloads mitochondria next best, sugar. And trans fats and sugar pretty much characterize the processed food diet. Now, trans fats are going away because now the FDA, uh, just last year, finally declared trans fats as generally recognized as not safe for the first time. They took trans fats off the grass list. And that's wonderful and that's terrific, but sugar's still there and sugar's going to be a tough one to dislodge from that list. Bottom line is, as long as it's on that list, the food industry has license to use as much as it wants to in any given foodstuff. And so sugar has become the biggest problem in our diet since the advent of trans fats. That's an interesting comment on the trans fat and that, that FDA action was implemented by a lawsuit uh, by Dr. Fred Kumaro, who's a longtime researcher for trans fats. But the unfortunate challenge with that or problem is that they're removing the, the trans fats and they're replacing them with these other oils, these, these uh, non-saturated vegetable oils, and they're, they're heating them to high temperatures and they're producing even worse substance, like cyclic aldehydes, it's probably gonna make trans fats look good and we won't realize the full damage of these for 10 years down the road. Indeed, um, you know, bottom line is polyunsaturated fatty acids, which are in a lot of the seed oils that we consume, are actually reasonably good for us until they're heated. And when they're heated, then they actually form what are tantamount to trans fats. So uh, it's, it's a real you know, crapshoot and it's a real problem in terms of how one deals with processed food. Processed food has so many problems with it and sugar is just one of the problems. There are many problems with processed food. There's too much of five things and too little of three things. The too much things are too much trans fats, too much omega-6 fatty acids, which are pro-inflammatory, too much branch chain amino acids, which also overload your liver and cause chronic metabolic disease. And you get that from corn-fed beef, beef, chicken, and fish. Well, that's processed food. Too much alcohol and too much sugar. And then on the too little side, too little fiber, too little micronutrients, and too little omega-3 fatty acids, which are anti-inflammatory. So processed food has a zillion things wrong with it. Unfortunately, processed food is what we subsidize. Processed food is what we expect people to consume because of number one, expense, number two, shelf life. And that's making a fortune for the food industry, but it's killing us. I want to get back to the issue of the trans fats or the insulin resistance. And I was a bit surprised to learn that from your perspective, the trans fats appears to be a more significant contributor to insulin resistance than, than sugar exposure. Is, is that what you're saying? saying? Well, uh, again, trans fats have been going down. So the fact that the manifestation of the increased insulin resistance that we've seen over the last, I would say, 10 to 15 years, we cannot attribute to trans fats. There is no question that trans fats dry, drove insulin resistance in part because we couldn't digest the trans double bond. The reason the trans fats became so popular was because bacteria couldn't digest them. And that increased shelf life for pastries and cakes and things that sat on the shelf, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the 10-year-old Twinkie. But the fact of the matter is, the, whole, the same reason that bacteria couldn't digest them, 
Well, our mitochondria are refurbished bacteria. We couldn't digest them either. And so what would happen is we'd knock off the two carbon fragments to turn them into you know, fatty acid oxidation products until we got to the double bond. Then we couldn't go any further. And so then the rest of it lined our arteries and our livers. And you could actually see the trans fat moieties in the uh, arterial lesions of people with atherosclerosis. So there's no question that trans fats were a disaster. They continue to be a disaster. They're still used in foods, although certainly at much lower uh, levels than before. But again, as we talked about, you know, when you heat polyunsaturates, you can make them. So, you know, they're, they're never going to go away completely. Our trans, trans fats are, without question, consumable poison. They're, there's just no way around it. The question is, what about sugar? Is sugar as bad as trans fats? And the answer is no. I don't think sugar is as, as bad as trans fats because there's no uh, threshold where trans fats are safe. And there probably is a threshold where sugar is safe. And that threshold probably, and you know, we can argue this uh, in terms of individual people, but in general, that threshold probably is around six to nine teaspoons of added sugar per day, somewhere between 25 and 38 grams of added sugar per day. That's what the data suggest, because our livers do have the capacity to metabolize fructose, the sweet molecule of sugar, as long as the mitochondria don't get overwhelmed. So as long as you keep it below the threshold uh, above which toxicity would occur, I think that probably sugar's okay. I don't believe it's a straight linear relationship. I believe it's got a curvilinear relationship, and I think there probably is a safe threshold. Well, I, to I'd like to expand on that because I think it's an important point. Uh, and I suspect insulin resistance plays a big role in ma making that decision. Would you say, would you believe, would you agree with the fact, uh, the not the fact that the belief that uh, insulin resistance plays a large role in, in the, the incidence of overweight or obesity. Well, no question that insulin resistance generates hyperinsulinemia. And hyperinsulinemia means that there's more insulin at the fat cell. And more insulin at the fat cell means that you're going to shunt more energy into those fat cells because that's insulin's job. And so insulin resistance is clearly associated with weight gain. Now, a lot of people think the insulin resistance comes from the weight gain. Actually, the data that have come about in, the, I would say, the past two years argue strenuously against that, that actually the insulin drives the weight gain. Uh, there are basic science studies and clinical studies that show mechanistically that it's the insulin driving the weight gain. And this is one of the things that uh, endocrinologists, uh, nutritionists, gastroenterologists, general uh, physicians, you know, have not yet glommed onto, but the data are very clearly there that insulin's the instigator of these phenomena. So when your liver becomes insulin resistant, which is what sugar does because of the way it's metabolized, that generates hyperinsulinemia, and the hyperinsulinemia drives energy storage into fat. Okay, okay. so we have about two thirds of the population who are overweight, and then of course about maybe a quarter to a third that are diabetic or pre-diabetic, uh, another quarter who are hypertensive and a fair number who are of high cholesterol, all of which seem to have insulin resistance as a component of that. So from what would be your estimate as a clinician as to the prevalence of insulin resistance in American society? Is it at least 80%? Well, I mean, it not, would be there's no question in the obese, we're talking about 80%. So if you take the if you did a Venn diagram of the United States population, you'd have 240 million adults in that Venn diagram. And you could basically have two circles, one about twice as big as the other. You'd have the obese population, which is about 30%, and then you'd have the larger non-obese population, which would be about 70%. And what we know is that 80% of the 30%, 80% of the obese population are metabolically ill. They have insulin resistance, and that manifests itself in many ways, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, heart disease, cancer, dementia. These 80% of the obese population, these 57 million people, are sick. They get all these diseases. And the standard mantra is, well, gee, if they would just diet and exercise, 
They wouldn't be obese and we could solve this problem. This is patently untrue. Number one, it is true that 80% of the obese population is metabolically ill. That is true. But that means that 20% of the obese population is not. They're metabolically healthy. They're called metabolically healthy obese. They will live a completely normal life, diet at a completely normal age, not cost the taxpayer a dime. They're just fat. They take it on the chin because they're fat. But the fact is they're not contributing to our uh, runaway uh, medical train, as it were. Conversely, let's talk about the 70% that are normal weight. So that's 168 million people in that circle. Turns out 40% of the normal weight population, 40% of the 70%, 67 million people have insulin resistance on lab tests, and they manifest different manifestations of metabolic syndrome as well. Normal weight people get type 2 diabetes. They get hypertension. They get dyslipidemia. They get cardiovascular disease. They get cancer. They get dementia also. Now, they don't get it at the same prevalence as the obese, of course, 40% versus 80%, but they get it and there are more of them. And when you do the math, there are more thin sick people than there are fat sick people. So the thin sick people are actually costing more. And when you do the math on the two together, the sick population is 124 million. That's more than half the U.S. adult population. Well, it turns out the thin people are costing us more. And the thin people, you can't attribute this to gluttony and sloth or diet and exercise because they're normal weight. So if it's not about behavior then there's only one other option. It must be about exposure. This is an exposure. This is an exposure that obese people are exposed to, and it's an exposure that even normal weight people are exposed to. And that is called the Western diet. And the Western diet is replete with sugar. And sugar is mechanistically the thing that drives this insulin resistance. Well, processed foods, of which sugar is a major component. But I think the more gen general eat the, the, uh, sugar is the variable is, is the processed food. Sugar is the marker for processed foods. Basically, processed foods don't taste all that good. A lot of the things that made food worth eating were actually in the fractions that were taken out, like the fiber fraction. So in order to uh, 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 mitigate the effects of bitter and sour and uh, umami and salty, what you do is you cover them up with sugar. The food industry has figured out numerous concoctions of you know, sugar-containing uh, uh, items in order to be able to um, uh, obfuscate the negative tastes that processed food delivers. And so sugar is the marker of processed food. So what was, what's your best estimate is the prevalence of insulin resistance in the U.S. population? Uh, it's 70%, it's 80% it's of 30% plus 40% of 70%. Basically, it's about 50%. So it's about half from your perspective. Okay, so for those who are insulin resistant who are really the, the, the challenge, what, and as a clinician, you're still actively seeing patients in addition to educating individuals, is uh, what is the best therapeutic strategy that you've uh, learned about to effectively make a difference and resolve the insulin resistance? Two words, real food. What we do in our clinic here at UCSF, it's the weight assessment for teen and child health clinic. What we do is we assess patients, we determine what the issue is, but I would say for the overwhelming majority, 60 to 70% of patients is because of their processed food diet. And we basically teach them what it is that they were supposed to do, what it is that their grandparents did. And we basically, just like Michael Pollan said, you know, if your parent, grandparent wouldn't recognize it as food, it isn't. Uh, it's the same concept. We get kids and we get parents off processed food. Now, processed food has taken over our lives. Um, if you look at the uh, Mother Jones article that Kristen Carnes and Gary Taubes wrote back in 2012, they show that our healthcare, uh, sorry, our, our food dollar uh, has, you know, they divide it up into different uh, bins. And it turned out that the processed foods and sweets bin doubled in the span of 30 years from 1982 to 2012. And that's exactly 
what's wrong. So what we have to do is we have to move them back. And what we do is we explain what real food is. A lot of kids don't even know what real food is. You know, a lot of kids think that fruit-flavored yogurt is real food. It is not. <laughs> we explain yogurt is sour milk. You know, the milk that sours in your refrigerator and yogurt are virtually identical, except that for yogurt, you get to choose the bacteria that does the sour. So if you want yogurt, have plain yogurt and throw whole fruit in just like the Europeans do. That's called real food. What, you know, the yogurt companies are doing when they add evaporated cane juice to mitigate to, to actually uh, get rid of the sourness because only in America is yogurt dessert. You know, this is what we have to educate people. Yogurt isn't supposed to taste good. Yogurt is supposed to taste sour. So we have a lot of work to do. Yeah, we just published a report with Cornucopia exposing this fraud because the vast majority, well over 90 percent, probably closer to 95 percent of the commercially available yogurts are nothing more than creamy junk food. Absolutely. Yeah, so I couldn't agree more. So I, I'm wondering if you could comment on the emerging number of clinical trials that seem to show very promising results with the use of an intervention called intermittent fasting. And there's a number of different strategies that one can use, but it seems to be a powerful tool to help resolve insulin resistance, ideally integrated, of course, with real food. Yeah. Um, I'm not a fan of intermittent fasting, but I'm also not a detractor. Um, I have seen those studies. I've seen that they certainly can work. I think the reason they work is because when you fast, your liver has to live off the liver fat that's there. And so what you're doing is you are temporarily depleting your liver fat stores. And so what you are doing is you are restoring metabolic stability to the liver and improving hepatic insulin sensitivity, at least temporarily, until you start eating again. I think that you can do this much, much more rationally by eating properly all the way through the week rather than having to do intermittent fasting. I think ultimately the goal is get the liver fat down. And since the liver fat, the cause of the liver fat is the dietary sugar via the process of de novo lipogenesis, which we have shown which my colleagues Jean-Marc Schwartz, Kathy Mulligan, Alejandro Gugliucci, and I have shown, we think that once you get rid of the sugar, the liver fat will go down. And we have data that supports that, both in adults and in children. So I personally don't think you have to go to the extent of intermittent fasting. I think ultimately what you have to do is get the liver fat down. Yes, will intermittent fasting do that? Yes, it will. But will eating properly do that, it does it even better. Uh, well, it, it just seems to replicate a uh, uh, ancestral eating pattern that, that we had and that made our, maybe our genes and biochemistry adapted to because our ancestors never had access to grocery for 24-7. Most of them went through regular periods of feast and famine, so it seems we may be adapted to that type of eating style rather than eating three, three meals and snacks in between and the only time we're not eating is when we're sleeping, even if it's real food. Well, there's no question that if you fast, you're going to become ketotic. You're lowering your insulin. You're going to uh, release fatty acids from fat cells into the bloodstream. Those fatty acids are then going to go to the liver and get processed into ketones. Uh, and those ketones can then be used by the rest of the body for energy. So that per certainly works. But the problem with fasting is when those ketones first come out and the enzymes aren't yet developed in order to be able to metabolize them, you feel like crap. You feel lousy. People, people who become ketotic acutely usually do not feel very good. I do it once a year on Yom Kippur, and let me tell you, I don't feel so good, and I get headaches and whatever. But if you do it for five days, if you basically adopt a ketogenic diet, and this, of course, is the work of Jeff Folick and Steve Finney, and you know they certainly you know they get this and they understand this. What you do is you upregulate those enzymes and you can live off those ketones very nicely if you maintain that ketogenic diet and keep your insulin down at zero. And I have nothing against that either. If you want to do that, that's great. It certainly limits the kinds of foods and the availability of a real food diet, uh, you know, to, you know, limit the types of foods that you're consuming. Uh, you can't have any carbohydrate if you're going to do that. I personally don't think that we have to go to that extreme 
in most cases. Now, I do use a low-carb diet for patients where I can't get the insulin down any other way. I'm not saying that low-carb diets are bad. I'm not saying that low-carb diets don't work. They are not bad, and they do work, and I do use them. But I use them in patients on a per-patient basis. I don't do you know, sort of general advocacy of any given diet. I practice what you might call personalized obesity medicine. And the goal is to try to match the therapy with the pathology. And when we do that, we are usually very successful. I would put my numbers and my uh, uh, statistics in terms of our uh, uh, success in our clinic up against any other childhood obesity program in the country. And we don't see our patients nearly as often, so we don't waste as much money in terms of personnel. So we have a break-even uh, situation as opposed to a lot of programs that are throwing lots of money in to keep people employed, and they're not doing nearly as well. And the reason is because we match the pathology with the therapy. That's great. Congratulations on your results. The uh, issue, though, with intermittent fasting, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to involve a low-carbohydrate diet. In fact, most of the regimens that I'm familiar with don't. So you don't necessarily have to go into ketosis. It's just a matter of restricting the eating window, maybe eight to ten hours, and and, and still having regular carbohydrates in that. And it just seems to me if a person's highly insulin resistant, maybe, maybe uh, not experiencing the results you're anticipating in your typical program, that that may be a therapeutic option to, accept, to accelerate the uh, insulin resistance. I'm not for it or against it. You know, the fact of the matter is half the Muslim world, you know, celebrates Ramadan. And they don't necessarily lose weight while they're intermittent fasting each day. You know, and they're going 8 to 12 hours without eating either. So, you know, I think it probably depends on the patient and it depends on what's going on. Uh, I'm not uh, a fan. I'm not a detractor. I think that probably intermittent fasting will work for some people and not for others. I think that some people can adopt it and some others can't. I'm for real food. That's what oh, I'm okay. here for. Perfect. So... Do you actually monitor insulin resistance clinically or in the laboratory? And then based on those assessments, do you change your rec uh, diet recommendations? Absolutely. We do many lab tests on patients when they first come in in order to establish what their metabolic health baseline is. So we look at fasting insulin, and of course we look at fasting glucose, and we compute the HOMA, the uh, homeostatic model of insulin resistance. Uh, we look at uric acid as a proxy of sugar consumption. We look at ALT as a proxy for liver fat. We look at uh, lipid profile to look at the triglyceride levels, the HDL levels, because that will tell you about insulin resistance. We look at LDL as well, although that is a secondary uh, issue in our clinic as opposed to a primary issue uh, like it is in so many other places. So we do a whole host, uh, oh, and we, of course we do hemoglobin A1C to determine what their degree of glucose tolerance over the last three months is. So we do a whole host of laboratory studies in order to sort of give us where people come in, where they are at baseline. And then using those data, we will tailor what we recommend for the patient and what they're able to uh, accomplish within their home. Remember, I'm taking care of children. So in order to do that, I have to get the parents to do the right thing for themselves, not just for the kids. So we have to work with the entire family together in order to make the home safe for the child. And usually when we do that, we make the home safe for the adult as well. Right. So when the insulin resistance improves, you allow more carbohydrate or sugar into the per, – permit more. I mean, obviously it's not in good and large amounts, but is it something that you is based on your – Assessment of the patient. What we, what we tell people is very simple. Get rid of every sugared beverage in the house. Okay? Then eat your carbohydrate with fiber. And if you do that, then whole fruit is okay because the fiber mitigates the negative effects of the fructose on uh, uh, hepatic metabolism because it reduces the rate of absorption, number one. Number two, it forms a gel. Uh, on the inside of the intestine, which provides a secondary barrier and delivers food further down the intestine faster, so you get the satiety signal sooner, and you also get the uh, nutrients to the intestinal bacteria so that they can chew them up, so you won't get them. So 
basically when you consume your carbohydrate with fiber, you are limiting your consumption uh, or your absorption. You are limiting your liver's exposure and your liver can get healthier. So we don't tell people they can't eat sugar. They have to eat the sugar in the form that nature provided it. It's called whole fruit. Okay. And is that a concept extend to grains too because there are many clinicians who, uh, especially in an insulin-resistant individual, would suggest limiting grains or eliminating them until the insulin resistance improves. I'm wondering what your position on that is. So what we, what we say is that nature packaged all carbohydrate with its requisite fiber. And if you eat it the way nature produced it, you're getting the fiber that you need to mitigate the effect. What you're referring to is the concept of glycemic index. You know, the higher the blood sugar rise, the higher the insulin rise, and therefore the more uh, energy will get shunted to fat. I do not believe in glycemic index. I believe in glycemic load. And there's a big difference between the two. Glycemic index is how high will your blood sugar rise when you consume 50 grams of a carbohydrate in a specific food. Glycemic load is how much food do you have to eat to get the 50 grams. The perfect example of how these dichotomize is carrots. So carrots have a high glycemic index. If you eat 50 grams of carbohydrate in carrots, your blood sugar is going to go pretty high. And so carrots have a high glycemic index and a lot of dietitians tell their patients, don't eat carrots because they have a high glycemic index. Garbage. Absolute trash. Because uh, carrots have a very low glycemic load. Because in order to get 50 grams of carbohydrate in carrots, you would have to eat 1.3 pounds of carrots. You'd have to eat the whole friggin' Grimway truck. Okay, no one's going to do that. You're going to get sick of carrots before you ever get there. So the concept is if you consume the food with its requisite fiber, the fiber mitigates the effects of the carbohydrate on that insulin response. So real food takes care of itself. That's basically a low glycemic load diet is what we are shooting for. And there's an, there are two words that describe a low glycemic load diet. You don't have to go into the store and say, is this low glycemic load or not? All you have to say is, is this real food or not? Because real food is automatically low glycemic load because it comes with its requisite fiber. And another argument against the use of glycemic index is uh, one of your friends is fructose and this glycemic index, I believe, is zero, right? Well, fructose has a glycemic index of 19. Okay, very low, very low. Glycemic index. Yet fructose's negative effects have nothing to do with glycemic index. It has to do with how much your liver gets overloaded. Now, glycemic index is how high your serum glucose goes. Fructose doesn't contribute to an increase in serum glucose because it's fructose. It contributes to a serum fructose level, which is way worse and causes reactive oxygen species formation within the arterial wall, causes plaque formation, causes all sorts of negative consequences, lipid peroxidation, protein denaturation due to the reactive oxygen species having nothing to do with how high the insulin goes and how high the blood sugar goes. Fructose is toxic irrespective of its glycemic index because glycemic index is a canard. Anyone who believes in glycemic index needs to basically get re-educated. And I'm talking to all you dietitians out there. Get with the program. Great. I couldn't agree more. So you, I'm sure you've heard of the uh, recent interest in the observation that is viewing sitting as the new smoking and uh, the fact that many of us are most of us are sitting to eight hours a day and if you've got an office job it might be 13 hours or more so i'm wondering if you've integrated that component into your program by recommending that people go out and walk after they eat to to lower the blood sugar level sure uh we very much promote exercise um, what we, we have four messages that come out of our general lifestyle intervention for every patient when they first come to clinic. Now, whether they do them or not is a different sit- issue, but the four messages are get rid of every sugar beverage in the house. And by the way, all of these are evidence-based. Number two, eat your carbohydrate with fiber. Number three, wait 20 minutes for second portions in order to take advantage of the peptide YY rise 
to reduce second portion consumption. And then the fourth one is buy your screen time with activity. So if you're watching TV for a half hour, that means you're outside for a half hour. If you're texting for an hour, that means you're you know, playing soccer for an hour, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the question is, why is activity, why is exercise important? Does exercise promote weight loss? The answer is no, it doesn't. Exercise does not promote weight loss. There are no studies anywhere in the entire world's literature that show that exercise alone, alone, promotes weight loss. It promotes weight stability, but it does not promote weight loss. Now, if you believe a calorie is a calorie, if you increase your exercise, you should be burning calories, you should be losing weight, but you don't because a calorie is not a calorie. Why does exercise not promote weight loss? The answer is because exercise promotes muscle gain. And that's the reason why exercise is good. Exercise promotes muscle gain. There is a transcription factor known as PGC1-alpha, PPR gamma coactivator 1-alpha, which is the transcription factor that's involved in mitochondrial biogenesis. In other words, when you turn on PGC1-alpha, you make more mitochondria. Increasing your sympathetic tone, which is what exercise does, turns on PGC1-alpha. So increasing your exercise makes more mitochondria, and the reason is because you make more muscle, and muscle weighs more than fat. So you don't lose weight. What you do is you get rid of fat and you build muscle, all of which improve insulin sensitivity, all of which are very good for you from a metabolic standpoint, from a quality of life standpoint, from a general health standpoint, all good, but it doesn't show on the scale because muscle weighs more than fat. So every doctor who tells their patient, well, if you'd exercise, you'd lose weight, you know, is basically guilty of malpractice because it ain't true. There are no studies that show it, yet exercise is the single best thing you can do for yourself, and we should be promoting it, but we have to explain to patients what the outcome variable they should be looking at is, and the outcome variable is belt size, because they will reduce their visceral fat. They will lose inches, not pounds, and losing inches means improved metabolic health, and that's good. And that's great. And we should be explaining to patients what it is that they should be expecting from exercise. Well, great. So do you use waist size measurements as a variable in your practice? And what, what standards do you recommend people seek to achieve based on uh, your experience? Well, here, the problem is that uh, waist, size, waist circumference in children are not standardized. They're very different across different populations, different racial groups, and, of course, different ages and different pubertal stages. So what we do is we use waist circumference at, at baseline and then look at it you know, further down the line. We don't have specific standards to be able to point to. There's really only one paper in the literature on children's waist circumference. It's from Fernandez from the Journal of Pediatrics, and unfortunately, it's really quite lacking. So what we use it is as a baseline measure for each patient rather than comparing them to a relative uh, uh, distribution. And do you have any comments on the waist-to-hip ratio relative to the waist circumference? Um, the data on waist-to-hip ratio don't seem to contribute any more than waist circumference itself. The big issue with waist circumference is where do you measure it? And there are two places to measure it. The WHO measures it in one place. The NHANES measures it in another place. Actually, the data that I like the best was data that was developed from Rudy Leibel's group a couple of years ago where they looked at different metabolic parameters and had CT values at different levels. Uh, and they quantitated the amount of fat within that CT cut. And what they said was 10 centimeters above L4 to 5. Well, you know where that is? That's the belly button. Mm -hmm. I, I kind of measure it at the belly button. Okay. As long as you're consistent. And I'm consistent. Very good. So uh, I want to applaud you for your efforts at penetrating the media with this really important message and educating many, many millions of people about this because, uh, you know, the, the traditional media manipulation has been twice the converse as a result of the industry support of the, these ads and such. So I want to congratulate you on that effort. And I'm wondering if you've gotten any negative... You are, I'm sorry. Dr. Mercola. I mean, the bottom line is, um, you know, we have to speak truth to power, and, you know, because that's what it's about. And we will not solve this problem until the public is educated properly. 
they have to know what the real story is. And the good news is that there are now some resources out there that can give them that information. Your blog, your uh, website as well. Um, the movie Fed Up. You may know about sugarscience.org. Which yeah, we just did a, We just did an article on that the other day. Right. So that's eight thousand oh, yeah. clinical research articles vetted by eleven scientists who don't take money from the industry, um, uh, of which I'm one, and uh, distilled down into five uh, messages for the general population. You may be aware of a public television special that we just uh, uh, produced called Sweet Revenge, Turning the Tables on Processed Food, which is making its way around pledge break uh, 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 specials around the country right now. Um, the point is that the information is now available, and people need to understand that they have been fed a bill of goods, and they need to take back their health because the food industry won't do it for them. Well, again, I congratulate you for catalyzing that message, that important message. So I'm wondering if you've had, so you're, you're really uh, uh, elevated in the academic community. I'm wondering if you've gotten resistance from your colleagues about spreading this message and criticism and, and if, you know, what, what are you experiencing at that, that level? Well, it, it's kind of an interesting thing. I think there are a few people who see this as sour grapes and, you know, like, why does he get to do this or what, what, you know, what, what does he have that we don't have or why is he promoting this and, you know, does he, is he trying to get famous and, I, you know, I'm, I'm not at all. I mean, I'm a very reluctant participant in this. You know, I was, you know, trapped in the ivory tower for many years, you know, but the bottom line is this information had to get out there. There are two things that have really changed my life, two statements, and let me, you know, sort of give them to your audience and they can, you know, sort of do what they will with them. The first was by Jeremiah Stamler, who was the father of cardiovascular epidemiology back in the early 20th century. And he said very famously, if a researcher is not willing to follow his data into the policy arena, who will? Well, you know, the fact is we scientists generate the data and then we expect our uh, policy people, our public health officials, our politicians to use those data in order to improve the public good. Well, that stopped. That stopped about 40 years ago. And there are lots of reasons why it stopped, but mostly they center around money. And so we physicians, we scientists have now had to take this added role on as well. The second is a statement that I heard uh, from an Indian public health forum uh, about uh, that, that occurred about five years ago. It's called the Hyderabad Statement, and it states, all significant public health advances involve and require the use of law. That's exactly right. Every single uh, public health debacle that we have faced in America has required a legal challenge, usually because there's somebody making money off the other end, whether it be tuberculosis or pollution and asthma or vitamin deficiencies or teen pregnancy or guns or HIV. Bottom line is all, they've all required legal challenges. Sugar and processed food is no different. So in order to understand the nature of the arguments, understand the legal doctrines, and in order to be able to be a better and more effective policy wonk, I went to law school and I got a master's in law. Uh, from UC Hastings uh, last year, very specifically to be able to do this work and to be more effective at doing it. So we have to use the science to help formulate the policy, and we have to be able to know where the political imbroglios and the political problems occur in order to be able to either ram through them or circumvent them. Well, congratulations! I didn't realize you had your had an, are now an attorney also. No, no, I'm so an attorney. I'm not an AD. I'm just a master's in law. I can okay. sue, but I can talk to people who can, and they're okay, listening. Perfect, terrific. So, what what are what are your current strategies, and uh, can you document or tell us any of the successes you've had to date so far? Well, we're doing a whole bunch of things, but I will tell you, um, most of the things that we're doing are sort of right now. Uh, we're being a little quiet about. But the first issue is public education. You can't do anything until you have public education. Ultimately, you can't see policy change, uh, litigation change, 
administrative law change. You can't see any of those things unless the public is supportive and behind it. Uh, and right now, we're not there yet. And it took a long time with cigarettes. It took a long time with alcohol for us to be able to get there. Uh, this is just really hitting the ground now. You know, um, uh, Mark Bittman and Michael Pollan and Ricardo Salvador and Olivier this past year called for a national food policy. And I completely agree with that. Right now, we have 15 agencies and 51 separate agreements that control food regulatory activities in our country. And no one knows what the other hand is doing. And the food industry takes complete advantage of this. We need a national food policy. Our nonprofit, the Institute for Responsible Nutrition, is uh, participating in that discussion. We are doing a bunch of things in order to try, try to level the playing field and uh, bring that to fruition probably over the course of the next three to five years. We also have some very specific uh, uh, efforts that we are ourselves engaged in, which uh, I'm not at liberty to discuss right now. Well, I'm really curious, you know, as physicians, we're both physicians, we, we practice medicine, we see patients, and it becomes really obvious very clearly that food plays a central role in, in, the, in almost all diseases. Food is but, but, but why? Why are you so passionate about this and making such a dent when the vast majority, forget the majority, we're talking over 99% of physicians aren't doing anything. They're just going on their day, not saying a word about this, and not really even addressing it in almost any way, shape, or form. Because they didn't learn how. They, they went to med school. I went to med school. You went to med school. Did you learn any nutrition in med school? Really? I mean, nobody does, and they still don't. There was just a recent survey that said only 19% of uh, medical schools actually teach nutrition in medical school. Well, if food is medicine, and if all of these chronic metabolic diseases are diet-related, which they are, and they're preventable, shouldn't physicians know something about food? What they've learned is they've learned about drugs, in part because the drug industry has done a very good job of selling itself to the medical profession, whereas the food industry has basically gone the other route and basically you know, remade itself because of subsidies into this, you know, consumable chemical uh, uh, industry, which we physicians don't understand. The sad part of this, Dr. Mercola, is I knew all of this in college. I majored in nutritional biochemistry in college at MIT. Oh. In fact, my teacher was Sandy Miller, who ended up being one of the uh, undersecretaries of the Food and Drug Administration. This was back in the uh, mid-1970s. And then I went to medical school and they beat it out of me. You know, I rediscovered all of this 35 years later based on the research I was doing. And I, it was almost like having selective amnesia. You know, I was having these, you know, sweats at night, you know, like, oh my God, I knew this, you know, it was coming out from my subconscious because it had been buried for so many years. The fact is medical schools don't teach this Doctors don't know this. They don't know how to do this. They don't know how to talk to their patients about this. They don't even know what's in the food themselves. So I guess we shouldn't be too surprised that the food industry has basically taken this part of medicine over from doctors. The problem is they're using it to their own advantage. It's time for us to take food back as a mode of therapy. Well, I could agree more, and I didn't realize you had a nutritional biochemistry background before you started this whole process. It makes perfect sense now. But do you, you know or may be aware of that some experts believe that over a century ago that the Rockefeller and the Carnegie Foundations started to become involved in medical education and actually were uh, responsible for the federal government actually licensing, you know, formally licensing and everything. But, but also more importantly, especially in context of this, is that they were directing the medical curriculum sure. more in favor of of drugs and getting nutrition out of the curriculum. It was by design. Well, that, 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 that may be true. Um, certainly the Flexner Report, you know, from 1910, you know, which, um, you know. Which they subsidized. Which they subsidized. Um, certainly that, that was true. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, I don't think we did anything specific to undo 
the concept of food. I think it just sort of fell by the wayside. I think we left it to other people. I think, um, you know, you may, may remember Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, which was published sure. in the uh, early 1910s. And, you know, I think we basically looked at food safety, acute food toxicity as a major problem. We had not yet experienced chronic food toxicity. And so it wasn't in our ethos. It wasn't in something that we knew about. Again, Haven Emerson first noticed the change in diabetes in 1924. It took a long time. Look at lead poisoning. The first uh, paper that came out about lead poisoning was in 1892. We didn't get lead out of paint until 1982. It took 90 years before the first paper and the final action. These things, these chronic exposures, these long-term chronic exposures take a long time to fix. And so we shouldn't be too surprised that this has happened. But now we have the data. It's not like it's a question anymore. It's hard and fast. We have the data. And we don't have correlation anymore. Now we have causation. We have causation for sugar and obesity. We have causation for sugar and diabetes, for heart disease, for fatty liver disease. Now we have correlation for cancer and dementia. We're not quite there yet for those two, although people are working on that. We have causation. It's time to do something about it. Yeah, and you're actively doing that and catalyzing others to and with with your efforts and you know it's just uh, it's great to see that. So you you uh, review the research in this area regularly, and I'm wondering if there's any significant updates in the last year or so that you think have been real relative relative milestones or important pieces of information people need to know. Well, of course, there are the meta analyses that have shown that sugar contributes not just to weight gain but also to hypertriglyceridemia and you know other diseases. So uh, this past year, uh, uh, the paper from Yang et al. from JAMA Internal Medicine, which looked at uh, consumption of added sugar over two decades as a percent of total calories and showed that it contributed to cardiovascular death in a big way. And if you were consuming 30% of your calories as added sugar, like our teenagers are, your risk for heart disease death is fourfold greater. So if you think we got a problem now, wait till our teenagers hit heart disease age things are, you know, really going to be even worse shortly. Uh, we have some data that we're very excited about that we'll be presenting at major meetings this coming year that will uh, move the, uh, the needle even more, um, which I'm not at liberty to discuss right now. Terrific. So uh, I, anything else you'd like to add before we end? Because it's just been a real pleasure to connect and find out some of these updates. So, uh, you know, just for your audience, food should confer wellness, not illness. And it used to. But then the food industry got involved. And now it confers illness, not wellness. We have to take back our food. <laughs>